0: We've been talking about marriage, and you don't need me to tell you that marriage is under attack. We should each be very heedful of living the message of Our Lady of Fatima. And we now have the decriminalization and state recognition of polygamy that's lurking right around the bend. Would that that were only an exaggeration. There's at least one very well-known American organization which officially supports challenges to polygamy laws. Their website has an article entitled UDA's Bigamy Statute and the Right to Privacy and Religious Freedom, in which they state, quote, "...by criminalizing private, consensual adult relationships that are motivated by sincerely held religious beliefs, we fail to live up to the constitutional promise that consenting adults be free to maintain and define their personal relationships without fear of government interference." Close quote. Okay, Father, what organization is this which actually officially supports challenges to polygamy laws? Well, I took that off the Utah website of the ACLU. Of course, everyone here is familiar with the ch- situation in California. 2008, voters in California amended their state constitution by approving Proposition 8, the California Marriage Protection Act, but this past August, this amendment was declared to be unconstitutional and a ruling so insane and immoral that I can't even discuss it from the pulpit. In response to this ruling, Dr. Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, made some excellent and very pointed remarks and stated that, quote, marriage has been essentially redefined right before our eyes, close quote. But with all due respect to Dr. Muller, he's completely wrong. He's wrong. The sense redefinition of marriage in the West occurred some 500 years ago. It's at the very foundation of the Protestant revolt. After all, what was the whole issue with Henry VIII? Why did he break away from the church and tear all England with him? and started his own religion, placing it under the control of the state. Was it not so that he could essentially redefine the meaning of marriage right before the astonished eyes of the whole Catholic world? His redefinition of marriage is so well known that we'll pass over his story and turn our attention to the continent. We're swarming with all those renegade monks and priests who had broken their vows, And taken up with renegade nuns and other loose women. For example, Father Luther and Sister Catherine, his concubine, who has somehow been popularly redefined as his wife. Luther is such an important figure in this regard, it's worth taking a moment to consider some of his teaching regarding marriage. The renegade friar is adamant, he's absolutely adamant that marriage should be regulated not by the church but rather by the state. Marriage should be put under the control of the state. Martin Luther, quote, Marriage is a civic matter. It's really not, together with all its circumstances, the business of the church. It is only so when a matter of conscience is evolved. Marriage is outside the church as a civil matter and therefore should belong to the government. I feel that judgments about marriages belong to the jurists, Since they make judgments concerning fathers, mothers, children, and servants, why shouldn't they also make decisions about the life of married people? I advise my dear brothers, the pastors, and clergy to refuse to deal with marriage matters as worldly affairs covered by temporal laws and to divest themselves of them as much as they can. Let the authorities and the officials deal with them except where their pastoral advice is needed in matters of conscience. Close quotes. Father Martin Luther. Judgments about marriage belong to jurists. Marriage is a civic matter. It is not really the business of the church and should belong to the government. Judgments about marriage belong to jurists. Well, aren't these the very precise operating principles behind the divorce catastrophe and these new forms of marriage in our whacked-out society? At the very dawn of the Protestant revolt, we see a radical changing in the definition of marriage, not just in the personal life of the revolutionaries, but at the level of principles themselves. And as horrendous as it may sound, the ACLU, their support for polygamy is not original either. Quote, on September 3rd, 1531, Luther delivered an opinion in which he openly and candidly pronounced the marriage of King Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon, to be indissoluble, but pointed out that with the permission of the queen, Henry might, quote, marry an additional queen in conformity with the example of the ancients who had many wives, close quote. Melanchthon, now in case somebody doesn't know who Philip Melanchthon is, he's one of the leaders of the the Lutheran movement. He, uh, along with Luther, he's considered one of the fathers of Lutheranism. Melanchthon also declared, quote, the king may with a good conscience take a second wife while retaining the first. Close quote. Luther and Melanchthon both stated in writing that Henry could practice polygamy. As we know, Henry VIII didn't take their advice. He decided to do it in a more serial fashion. But a few years later, another famous ruler of the time did take this advice. On December 9th, 1539, Martin Bucer visited Luther. Now, in case somebody doesn't know who Martin Bucer is, he's a renegade Dominican friar who had taken up with a former nun. And he was sort of an ecumenical diplomat between the various revolutionary factions in Protestantism. Later on, he was involved with Cranmer in, in uh, making the Book of Common Prayer. Anyway, Bucer presented Luther with a request from the Landgrave Philip of Hesse. What's a Landgrave? Sorry about all these funny words. A Landgrave is a particular type of German count that runs a great, rules a great big area. In this case, Hesse. Okay, Philip of Hesse stated that he had been living an immoral life. And instead of continuing to run with loose women as a point of conscience, he needed to take another life. And so he wanted the permission of Luther Melanchthon so that his second wife would, quote, be not regarded as a dishonorable person, close quote. It's a pretty big demand. On December, these guys, uh, so Luther Melanchthon get presented with this thing on December 9th. They give it all the, the attention that it deserved. On December 10th, the next day, they gave the written reply. They state that the second marriage is not contrary to the law of God and that Philip may enter into it because of his necessity of conscience. They demand that the new marriage, as well as this written document, should remain secret in order to avoid scandal. Didn't work, by the way. Uh, The document was delivered to Philip, who had six other Protestant ministers sign it. On March 4th, 1540, in the chapel of the the castle of Rotenburg, in the presence of witnesses, including Booster Melanchthon, this so-called marriage was solemnized. There are even more crazy details dealing with insane attempts to cover up uh, what had happened once the news broke and other examples of this kind of marital advice from Luther, but we don't have time to get into all that today. The point is that right at the root, Protestantism is a system. Now, we're certainly not talking about the average Protestant couple. This didn't impact them, so it doesn't have anything to do with those people. But as a system, at the level of principles From the very beginning, Protestantism has redefined marriage. This is one of the foundational errors. It's obvious from the case of Henry VIII that divorce, at least at some level, has been permitted from the very beginning. And we've seen that polygamy was both proposed and permitted, at least at some level, by the very founders of the system. Marriage was clearly proclaimed to be a civil matter belonging to the government, and judgments were to be left to the jurists. And the logical consequences of this Protestant redefinition of marriage have been slowly worked out, and they're now bearing their rotten fruit right before our very eyes. So in the midst of this present social chaos, this complete marital meltdown which surrounds us, it's essential for each one of us here to have a very clear idea of what marriage actually is, to have a correct understanding of marriage. Luther claimed that marriage is a civic matter. It's not the business of the church. and should belong to the government. And that certainly seems to be the popular conception, or I should say misperception, in our society today. Let's just deal with that where once and for all with the words of the great Pope Pius XI in his encyclical on Christian marriage. Quote, Let it be repeated as an immutable and inviolable fundamental doctrine that marriage was not instituted by man, but by God. The laws made to strengthen and confirm and elevate it were not made by man, but by God. And therefore these laws cannot be subject to any human decrees or to any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves. This is the doctrine of Holy Scripture. This is the constant tradition of the universal church. This is the solemn definition of of the sacred council of Trent. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. Marriage and the laws of marriage cannot be subject to any human decrees or to any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves. That doctrine relates directly to the marriage contract, which we're going to spend a few minutes looking at today. Remember that we've seen that marriage is a contract that results in relationship. We've seen that the contract is made by a man and woman and that the relationship is created by God, a real lifelong relationship between them. So the doctrine stated by the Pope that marriage and the laws of marriage cannot be subject to any human decrees or any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves, that doctrine applies to the marriage contract as well. A wise, redemptorist priest explained decades ago, quote, "...the most important feature..." of the contract of marriage is the fact that its terms are laid down not by the free will of human beings, but by the authority and command of God. Why is this? Why cannot an individual decide for himself or herself to what he will bind himself in marriage? Simply because marriage has a necessary purpose to fulfill in human society under the plan of God that cannot be fulfilled except under certain unchangeable terms and rules. God has established the purpose once and for all, and God has determined the rules by which the purpose is to be attained. No human being is free either to change the purpose or the essential rules. Close quote. Marriage has a necessary purpose to fulfill in human society under the plan of God that cannot be fulfilled except under certain unchangeable terms and rules. God has established a purpose once and for all, and God has determined the rules by which the purpose is to be attained. No human being is free to change either the purpose or the essential rules. Okay, so what exactly is the necessary purpose of marriage as established by God? God created marriage as a lifelong union of a man and woman for two specific purposes. Primary purpose, a secondary purpose. The primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. Primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The secondary purpose of marriage has two aspects, mutual help and a remedy. Take a quick look at each of those. First, mutual help and comfort. God intends that man and wife help each other, not simply in household chores and in raising the children, but especially by mutual love and care for each other. Second, the remedy. Since the fall, marriage is also a remedy for concupiscence. Now, concupiscence is one of these $3 words that refers to the appetite which tends towards the gratification of our senses. That's what concupiscence is, this appetite that tends towards the gratification of our senses. All that means is that one of the purposes of marriage is the legitimate quieting of the passions. But even that has to be understood in a Catholic sense. It actually means a lot more than just calming down a passion. Why? Because the legitimate quieting of passions, which God has blessed and placed within the boundaries of marriage, is not simply concerned with the passions. It's also meant to express the love and intensify the union of the two personalities of the man and wife. Okay, so the legitimate quieting of the passions within the boundaries of marriage is not simply concerned with the passions. It's also meant to express the love and intensify the union between the man and the wife, that union between their two personalities in this relationship called marriage. So God created marriage with two specific purposes. The first purpose, the primary purpose of marriage, is the procreation and education of children. The secondary purpose of marriage is mutual help and comfort of the spouses and the remedy for concupiscence. Okay, so we've considered the purpose of marriage. Let's turn to the marriage contract. Redemptor's comments on the marriage contract. Quote, reason by itself will never be able to overcome the emotional objections and obstacles to carrying out God's will that are made powerful by the effects of original sin. For that reason, the married and the about-to-be-married must look upon their marriage contract as part of their commitment and surrender to Christ as their God, their Redeemer, their only hope of salvation and happiness. They must be mindful that through baptism they were reborn as children of God. They must look upon carrying out Christ's will in marriage, not as merely observing external legal formulas, but as the joyous fulfillment of a commitment they have made to Christ for time and for eternity. They must accept any hardships that arise from their contract of marriage as a small price to pay for the new life, the divine life, the everlasting life to which they've been elevated by Jesus Christ. Close quote. The married and the about to be married must look upon their marriage contract as part of their commitment and surrender to Christ as their God, their Redeemer, their only hope of salvation and happiness. They, may accept any, they must accept any hardships that arise from their contract of marriage as a small price to pay for the new life, the divine life, the everlasting life to which they have been elevated by Jesus Christ. There are five major areas of concern covered by the marriage contract. There are physical terms, spiritual terms, temporal terms, educational terms, and indissoluble terms. We already looked at the indissoluble terms when we saw that a marriage which is ratified and consummated, remember that ratified means that the vows have been validly exchanged and consummated means that the marital act has taken place sometime after the exchange of vows. We saw that a marriage which is ratified and consummated cannot be dissolved by any human power or by any cause other than death. That's the indissoluble terms. We've already considered those. Today we'll summarize the physical terms of the marriage contract. This aspect is easy to understand by simply considering the traditional description of the marriage contract. I just paraphrased Canon Ten eighty one, paragraph 2 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law. A man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. A man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. That's what they're contracting for. If it's properly made, validly made, this contract results in the relationship known as marriage. Both the man and the and the woman agree to the contract. That's why weddings work the way they do. You have two witnesses to the contract. Generally, they call them the best man and the maid of honor. They're standing there on behalf of society. The priest is standing on behalf of the church with respect to this aspect. He's supposed to ensure that the contract's properly entered into, okay? So what happens? In poetic terms, he stands there and asks the groom if he freely agrees to this contract. Answer, I do. Then, since it's a contract, he turns to the bride. Both parties are in on the deal. And again, in poetic terms, he asks the bride if she freely agrees to this contract. Answer, I do. And what are they saying I do to? They are saying I do to marital rights. Marital rights, which means that they each give and accept rights to acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. In other words, they've just been given not only God's permission but his actual blessing to use the great creative power. They may use this great power in the condition that the acts are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That gives the limits of those rights, so no contraception, etc. They may use this great power in the condition that these rights are exclusive, which means that each partner yields his rights exclusively to the other partner, which shows the unity of the relationship. No adultery, polygamy, etc. They may use this great power on the condition that each partner yields these rights perpetually, which shows the indissolubility of the relationship. No divorce. Okay, quick review. We asked, what's the marriage contract? We saw that it means a man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. We've already seen that if it's properly made, if it's validly made, then this contract made between a man and a woman results in a relationship made by God, which we call marriage. Okay, now let's briefly consider the marital debt or the marital duty. As we've seen, God created marriage with two specific purposes. The primary purpose is the procreation and education of children. The secondary purpose of marriage is a mutual help and comfort of the spouses and remedy for concupiscence. Acts between the spouses are good to the degree that they conform to these two purposes of marriage. The general principle here is everything in conformity with these two purposes, the primary and secondary purposes of marriage, is good and permissible. Anything opposed to them is evil and forbidden. Everything in conformity with the primary and secondary purposes of marriage is good and permissible, and anything opposed is evil and forbidden. We've also seen that by entering into marriage, each spouse has received rights. Rights. These rights come from God. This means that the other spouse has a corresponding duty before God to accept a reasonable request. That's one of the consequences of saying, I do. This is a serious duty owed in justice to the other spouse. Remember that this right is not simply right to the quieting of the passions, but a right to the union of the personalities and an expression of love. That means that the marriage debt must be paid generously or it's not being paid. Furthermore, to refuse a reasonable request to pay the debt without a very serious reason, and we'll get to those in just a minute, to refuse a reasonable request to pay the debt without a very serious reason is a mortal sin against justice, since it is a violation of the rights of the other spouse. And it is also a mortal sin against charity because frustrating one's closest neighbor can place that spouse in a potentially serious danger of falling from concupiscence. Refusal without a very serious reason is a mortal sin against justice and a mortal sin against charity. Okay, serious reasons that excuse from honoring the debt. The debt must be refused if there is insufficient privacy and when one partner insists on cooperation in sinful actions such as contraception. It may be refused for the following serious reasons. When the one requesting has committed adultery if it has not yet been forgiven by the other party. When the one requesting is not in their right mind, for example, drunk. When there is a real danger of causing miscarriage. When there's grave danger of injuring the other spouse, for example, with a deadly disease, for up to six weeks after birth, other questions should be referred to the confessional. Again, the debt must be refused if there's insufficient privacy, and when one partner insists on cooperation in sinful actions, such as contraception, it may be refused for the following serious reasons. When well, the one requesting is committed adultery, who has not yet been forgiven by the other partner, when the requesting is not in the right mind, for example, drunk, when there's a real danger of causing miscarriage, when there's grave danger of injuring the other spouse, for example, the deadly disease, for up to six weeks after birth. Again, other questions should be referred to the confessional. Let's review. Today we've taken a brief look at some of the current attacks on marriage and at their historical roots in the teaching principles and practices of of the original Protestant revolutionaries. We've seen that marriage was created by God, which means that no one can change the nature of marriage or its rules. We've seen that God created marriage with two specific purposes, the procreation and education of children and the mutual help and comfort of spouses and as a remedy for concupiscence. We've seen that these two purposes, primary and secondary, are legitimate, which means that acts between spouses are good to the degree they conform to these two purposes of marriage. We've seen that the general principle is everything in conformity with these two purposes, the primary and secondary purposes of marriage, is good and permissible. Anything opposed to them is evil and forbidden. We've seen that the marriage contract has physical terms, spiritual terms, temporal terms, educational terms, and indissoluble terms. Today we summarize the physical terms of the marriage contract. We've seen that the marriage contract meant that a man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. We've seen that God has given each spouse rights, which means the other spouse has a corresponding duty before God to accept a reasonable request. We've seen that this is a serious duty owed in justice to the other spouse, and it must be paid generously or it's not being paid. We've seen that to refuse to pay the debt without a very serious reason is a mortal sin against justice, and it's also mortal sin against charity. We've seen that the debt must be refused if there's insufficient privacy, and when one partner insists on cooperation in sinful actions such as contraception, and that it may be refused for the following reasons. When the one requesting is committed adultery, if it has not yet been forgiven, when the one requesting is not in the right mind, when there's a real danger of causing miscarriage, when there's grave danger of injuring another spouse for up to six weeks after birth, We've seen that other questions should be referred to the confessional. Let's close with some thoughts from the great encyclical on Christian marriage of Pope Pius XI. Quote Marriage and the laws of marriage cannot be subject to any human decrees or to any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves. The nature of matrimony is entirely independent of the free will of man so that if one has once contracted matrimony, he is thereby subject to its divinely made laws and its essential properties. From God comes the very institution of marriage, the purposes for which it was instituted, the laws that govern it, the blessings that flow from it. While man, through the generous surrender of his own person made to another for the whole span of his life, becomes, with the help and cooperation of God, the author of each particular marriage with the duties and blessings annexed thereto from divine institution, close quote, the Vicar of Christ. Let us ask Our Lady to protect marriages, especially those in which the couples are struggling.